Luke chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there are some in the uh, seats in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, you can keep that one, take it home with you. We're reading Luke chapter 1 this morning, verses 5 through 25. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Luke says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, and I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me, to take away my reproach among people. Let's pray. Father, your people desire to see your name high and lifted up. And so we come here, Lord, to hear your word and your name being exalted. And so as we come to this time, Lord, where your word is proclaimed, and we hear the story about this forerunner to the Messiah, to the King, to the Savior of the world, Lord. May our hearts and our minds be prepared, Lord, to receive this word that you have given. Lord, may your name be magnified and glorified through the preaching today. Pray, God, that you will speak through Pastor Steve, Lord, and that your name will be high and lifted up. And we will see you, Lord, in the light of your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Peter. Well, good morning. Um, 
I just got to thinking a little bit ago while we were finishing those songs. Um, you know, some churches have um, spectacular live worship every Sunday and a preacher on video. And we've kind of flipped that around, right? So we have, you know, some really good songs on video and, Lord willing, some decent preaching, all right? Now, kids, how many of you guys have ever won a trophy? Have you ever won a trophy doing anything? Okay. You have? Doing karate? Swimming? Okay, so there's some different trophies. Hannah, what? Soccer trophy. Okay, I got a trophy back here I want to show you guys. With some also has some medals on it as well. All right, have you ever gotten a trophy that big? Look at that big old trophy. All right. I need to be careful with it so I don't break it. It's got some medals here. Okay. This is my son's, one of, one of my son's trophies, one of his karate trophies. And if you've ever been to a karate tournament or uh, something like that, or as I, um, there was a, a soccer, a big soccer game this weekend. I didn't get a chance to watch it, but saw the highlights of it, uh, the, the, the Champions League in Europe. And they would set the trophy right beside the field while the, while the teams played. So the trophy was in view. And whenever Noah's been at one of these karate tournaments, the trophies are sitting there. They're all, they're all in view for everyone to see. Okay, because the, the, the idea behind that is that they want the competitors to see the prize, to see the trophy, and not just see the trophy, but desire the trophy. And so at the, at the soccer game yesterday, they had this big old fancy trophy sitting beside the field, and those teams could see that trophy all game long, and they, they were to desire that and to work hard on the field to try to win that trophy and to, to win that prize. And so this, the competitors at the karate tournaments are to, to look over there at all these trophies against the wall and say, I'm going to work hard. I'm going to compete so as to win the prize. I want to win the trophy. And that idea of seeing and savoring that trophy is sort of the idea behind the title of the series that we've begun called Seeing and savoring Jesus Christ. As Deemer and I prayed about what the next series of sermons needed to be at Harbin's, we had a strong feeling in our heart that Harbin's needs, didn't, not needed, but needs, to have its affections really stoked up for the glory of Christ. To find a a, a, a joy and a passion for Christ that can only be found by looking at Christ, by fixing our eyes upon who He is and then therefore desiring Him so greatly that it, that it changes everything about the way we do everything. It becomes our passion to see Christ and to desire Christ. My desire for Harbin's is for us to see Jesus. The problem is, is that the God of this world has blinded people's minds. We know that he's blinded the minds of unbelievers. Why? What has he done? He's blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. 2 Corinthians 4, 4. Satan has a job description. And part of that job description he has as he roams the earth is to blind people, to get people to look at something different, to get people's eyes over here so they won't look at the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. 
Because when people's eyes are open to see the light of the, of, the, of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it changes everything about them. And so if Satan can keep us going after lesser things and, and desiring lesser things, then he's accomplished his, well, his job. In Matthew 13, Jesus speaks of people seeing but not seeing. Mainly he was speaking to his people, the Jews, who had all the scriptures, who had all the promises, yet they still failed to see the Christ as well. We live in a culture that sees but does not see. I'm afraid there's many people sitting in our churches that see but do not really see. We don't want to be a a church of people who see but don't see. There is a way to see Jesus that's not really seeing Jesus. We can see Jesus as a great man. We can see Jesus as a great teacher. We can even see him doctrinally correct as the son of God, but still not see him in a way that's salvific, in a way that saves. There is a way to know right theology and doctrine about Jesus while still being in the camp of those to whom Jesus says, away from me for I never knew you. That's because to know Jesus is to truly treasure him as great. To truly know Jesus is to make him your absolute treasure. To know Jesus is to desire him above all other things. That's my wish for me. That's my wish for Harbin's. Is that we would see Jesus and savor him above everything else. My desire is that we would savor Jesus. When we truly see Jesus for who he is, we should savor him. When you see something that is true and beautiful and valuable, you treasure it, right? You cherish and admire and prize it. Why are some of the greatest works of art by men in, in museums that are protected by all kinds of fancy security systems? Okay, you got all these laser beams and whatever else that protect these pieces of art so no one can even touch it, much less steal it. That's because we have seen value in those things. We've seen, we've seen something good in those works of art. They are highly valued and we put them on display and we want to protect them and honor them. And, and so my belief is that if you've truly seen Christ for who he is, I'm not just saying you know a lot of facts about Christ, but you truly know who he is, then it changes everything. And you treasure him, cherish him, admire him, and prize him above all other things. You are the Matthew 13, 44 guy. It says that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Everything else in life is the stuff that he sold, and the field was Jesus. I've got to have the treasure. Spiritual seeing and spiritual savoring are so closely connected that it would be fair to us, to, fair to say this morning that if you don't savor Christ, you may not have truly seen him. If you don't treasure Christ, I'm not sure if you have seen him. I know a lot of believers who, who say they're believers, and I wonder. I don't see them treasuring Christ above their work. I don't see them treasuring Christ above their finances, above their next vacation, above 
their family even. I see all these things taking precedence. And Jesus, somewhere down here, or a category in the life of what it means to be a Christian, instead of being the treasure that is supreme above all other things. And I dare say, if we don't treasure Christ above everything else, and he's just a spoke in the wheel of our life, we may not be believers. Because to truly see Christ is to savor him above everything else. I believe that with all my heart. And we live in a lukewarm society with lukewarm churches that Christ is ready to spit out. People that are spit out are not saved people. Spit out people, according to Revelation, are unsaved people in the church who say they love Christ but also love the world so much that they have this lukewarm mixture of cold and hot. My desire is for Harbors to be red hot, on fire for Jesus Christ. And that's why we have chosen to go through this series. The aim of this series is to see that happen. And the only way it can happen is through his word. And so this series, we are walking through the Gospels. Looking at the life of Christ. Now we're not going to cover every verse of every one of the Gospels. We're going to do a harmony here. We're going to bring the Gospels together. So there are going to be some passages. Maybe we'll pick Luke's account of a specific story in the life of Christ. And cross-reference it with some of the other accounts. But we're just going to go through the life of Christ. And we started off last week with, or two weeks ago with the, well actually we started three weeks ago with the passage at the beginning of John. We started before the beginning of time. When the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. That's how we began. That's how the life of Christ starts. In eternity. And then we started, then the week after that we went to the genealogy in Matthew. And so today we're coming to this text today in, in the, the, the book of Luke. And, and I consider skipping over John the Baptist actually. But I think skipping over John the Baptist does us a disservice. We need to understand why John came. What John's purpose was. And how it, the coming of John the Baptist, actually causes us to see and savor Christ even more. So that's my goal this morning, is to is let's look at the arrival of John the Baptist and, and see and savor Christ more as a result of looking at the arrival of John the Baptist. Now I truly believe, as we go through this series, I truly hope that if we see and savor Christ more and more, we should be a church that grows in holiness. That grows in Christ's likeness. It's my desire for my life, and I hope, and I know it's my desire for your life. Let me just give you a little illustration I heard this week. Let's say you struggle with a habitual sin. I'm not going to name a sin. You just have a specific sin you struggle with every day. If I were to come to you and say, I've got a case with $100,000. If you can keep from committing that sin today, this is yours. You would do everything you could to win that $100,000. Okay? If a man in here is struggling with what he views on the internet, and I were to say, hey, $100,000 to stop watching that stuff today for one day, 24 hours, I guarantee you he'd be able to pull it off probably. Why? Because he has seen a treasure, and his heart has desired the treasure, and the treasure causes him to live differently. 
And the point is, Jesus Christ is our treasure. He's the treasure hidden in the field. And if we savor him and, and look to him more and more and more and treasure him more and more and more, it'll cause us to walk in holiness and give us the strength and the empowerment through the Spirit of God to defeat, to kill, to mortify sin. Hebrews 12.1 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus or fixing your eyes upon Jesus, as the NIV says, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who... Now we're copying his example, Jesus, who for the joy, the treasure set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So that's my desire, is that Harbins will grow in holiness as we seek and we savor Jesus Christ. So let's get into it now with Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 25. I had an overarching question as I looked at this text this week. And this was my question. Okay, we got, we got Dr. Luke here giving us a very orderly account of the life of Christ. Why does he begin his account with a story about someone other than Jesus? Why does he begin his account with a story about a guy named John the Baptist? Okay, so that was kind of my question coming into the text. That this man, John, who was a cousin of Jesus... He is the one that Luke starts off focusing on. Why not just mention him later? Let's get to Jesus right now and mention John later. Well, I think what Luke is trying to do, I know what Luke is trying to do, is he's trying to connect us back to the Old Testament. One interesting thing here, you cannot tell from just looking at the English. And matter of fact, I don't read Greek well enough to be able to see it in the Greek. So I'm trusting here um, the several different scholars I read who pointed this out. And that is in this section of scripture about Zechariah and the temple. The language that Luke uses here is very similar to the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint. Meaning that it was very Aramaic, very Hebraic language. It's not the normal style of Greek that he uses in the rest of the book. Nor that he used in the whole book of Acts. Instead he uses a very distinct style of Greek here. Which, which from what I understand is... Connecting it to the Old Testament in the sense that as you read this passage of Scripture here, if you were reading it in the Greek, you would feel like you're reading an Old Testament passage. And I think Luke does that intentionally. He also starts us off in his book at the temple, the center of Jewish worship. And he starts us off with a story about the priesthood. He is helping us see the continuation of the Old Testament story. The Old Testament story is, to, is being continued now as Luke starts his gospel. As I've said like crazy lately, the whole Bible is one story from beginning to end. It's not a collection of stories. It's not even two stories. Old story, new story. There's the God of the Old Testament, God of the New Testament. No, it's one story, one complete story. And passages like this help us to see that. That there is a connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Luke's readers will get that as they read this. And even more so as we'll see here in a minute. So Luke's trying to tie us back to the Old Testament to show us that it's a continuing story. But also, the Old Testament had ended with a promise. 
that an Elijah-type prophetic forerunner had to come before the Christ would come, before the Messiah would come. An Elijah-type prophetic forerunner had to come. There had to be a prophet who would signal that the time had come. And that's what John's life is all about. John is that signal. He's that signal that it's time. The time has come. The Messiah is coming. Um, you know, when I, uh, for example, when sometimes I'll put Trinity, who we're keeping, in timeout. Occasionally she has to go in timeout from time to time. And when Trinity's in timeout, she always asks me what the sound of my phone is going to make. Because sometimes I change the sounds on my timer and stuff. And I always set the little two-minute timer for timeout. And so I'll tell her what's, you know, it's piano sounds. Or one time it was barking, but that made my dog bark too whenever it went off. So I stopped that one. And so I always tell she, she said, when piano goes, when piano sounds, she, she's wanting to know what's the signal that I'm done with this waiting period here. This two-minute waiting period is done. So what's the signal, Mr. Steve? And so I'll tell her what the signal is. And, and so what was the signal here? The, the people of God had been waiting for 400 years. 400 years of time out, if you will. And what was the signal? Well, the signal was already promised in the Old Testament in Malachi. The signal was that there was a prophet coming in the type of Elijah. And when he came, you know that's the signal that Jesus is on his way. That the Messiah is coming. So there's four things that I want us to see here this morning um, that the arrival of John signals. It's in your notes. Okay, and number one, the arrival of John signals that the word of the Lord was again being spoken. That the word of the Lord was again being spoken. Uh, I meant to bring it with me this morning, but they're actually stored away in a place that I thought would be easier to get to, and I didn't have enough time this morning. But when I was in college... I think uh, between the years, the summer between the 92-93 school year. No, 91-92 school year and the 93-94 school year. Um, I, that summer was an amazing summer for me. You see, because the previous year I had met this gorgeous young lady. All right? And she was absolutely stunning in so many ways. She was beautiful, yes, but she was also had a personality of gold and and I decided to correspond with this young lady. But the problem was, it wasn't like she was just moving during the summer like to another state or something. She was actually going to Africa during the summer to be with her parents who were missionaries in Africa. You know who the young lady is. I don't need to drag that on any longer. But I remember corresponding with her all summer. And I still have those letters. We still have them in a box in the attic somewhere. All right? And I remember corresponding with her. The problem is, mail from Africa is not very reliable. Let's just put it that way. Now, I was sending off letters, and so and occasionally I'd get one. I'm like, all right, yeah. But then there would be long periods of time where I wasn't getting one. And so all th- types of things would begin to race through my mind. Did I write something wrong in the last letter? Or is it just these African mailmen don't know how to get that letter into the mail to here? And I, oh, I, I don't know. And there'd be Sometimes pretty long periods of time. As a matter of fact, it was so strange. Sometimes I would get like five letters at once. They all showed up exactly at the same time. Now they were, she had written them at different times, like five weeks apart. But they'd all show up in the, at one time. And so I remember the feeling when those letters would show up. And I'd open them up and be excited to read about what this young lady was doing in Africa. And, 
and it was exciting to me. But those periods of drought were difficult. And, and, and Israel has experienced, the people of God have experienced a, a period of great drought. Matter of fact, we know that they had endured what scholars call the 400 years of silence. Between the testamental periods. 400 years of silence. After the exile and the return to Judah, there had been no word. No authoritative, infallible word from God. Nor had there been any miracles. Now this was a nation that was used to miracles. And for 400 years, no miracles. The Holy Spirit was not moving amongst the people. What was going on? What was happening? When were all of God's promises going to find their fulfillment? How were they going to be fulfilled? Had God forgotten his people? Had God forgotten about them? God had not forgotten about them. Matter of fact, interestingly enough, and not just a coincidence because God works all things. And of course we know names in scripture bear a lot more meaning than names do to us today. And Zechariah's name, you know what Zechariah's name means? It means God remembers. God remembers. What a name. A guy named God remembers is walking into the temple and God's about to make it loud and clear, I have not forgotten my people. I've not forgotten you. Israel had been unfaithful to God. They had practiced spiritual adultery. They had gone after other gods. They had forsaken the covenant. They had forgotten God, but God had not forgotten them. And now God was about to speak once more in a definitive and in a final way. Let me read to you the last words of Malachi. Malachi written. Okay, this is, this is some 400 years prior to the events that are taking place here. Malachi is not only the last book in, the, in, in, in your Old Testament of your Bible. Chronologically, it's the very last book written. Not all the books of the Old Testament are organized chronologically. But in this case, Malachi being the last prophetic book is the very last word from God. Malachi chapter 4 verse 5, the last word from God before the 400 years of silence. He says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. That's how it ends. Do those words sound familiar? That I will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers? It should sound familiar. We just read something very similar in Luke chapter 5. I mean Luke chapter 1 verses 5 to 25. This story here is how that silence comes to an end. This story here is how God begins to speak again and now in a final and an authoritative way like never before. Let's read a little bit here in Luke chapter 1 verse 5. It says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, let me pause right there. I love how Luke grounds everything he writes in history. So this is a moment in history that God had set aside, set apart. God is sovereign over all the kings and over all the times and places in which we live. So in the days of, the, of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, God remembers, of the division of Abijah. 
And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Now this is not necessarily referred to a perfect moral righteousness. This phrase, righteous before God, refers to someone who lives a life of overall trust in and love for God. And if they are Old Testament believers who are understanding what these signs and the symbols of the sacrificial system and the priesthood and the temple and everything else pointed to, then they were looking forward to the day of their redemption and therefore they too, putting their faith in the coming Christ, were righteous in Christ. But I think here he's referring to just an overall lifestyle of moral upstandedness of goodness. It says here, but in verse 7, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Interesting that Luke mentions their moral character prior to their childlessness so as to say that their barrenness was not based upon any personal sin in their lives but upon the eternal sovereign purposes of God. And this is God's pattern over and over again in Scripture. Over and over again in Scripture. Taking weak people, barren people, people who cannot do anything on their own and blessing them and bringing great fruit from their life. Continue in verse 8. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And here it is. And there happened to him, happened, I'm sorry, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, and here is the first words coming from God, because he's speaking through his envoy, an angel. In 400 years, he says, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayers have been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Now that alone would have been quite a revelation from God. That alone would have marked this day for Zechariah as quite an amazing day. But God had a purpose behind the giving of this child to this old barren couple. Verse 15. For he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Here's that part that should sound similar to you. To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. And to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Luke here, by bringing this story to the forefront of his gospel, is connecting the very last words of Malachi to the beginning of the life of Christ. God's last words in the Old Testament are now his first words in the New. So as to say, now the story continues. I am speaking once again. Your son, Zechariah, is going to prepare the way for my Christ, my Messiah, my son who will be the final word from God. He will be the final revelation from God. So this is how Luke starts his gospel, with an announcement that God was now speaking again. 
Now look at the elements of this passage back in Malachi. I'm going to read to you the Malachi passage again. Malachi 4, but I'm going to back up one verse. Malachi 4, 4 says, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now look at the elements of that passage. We have the law of Moses and the prophets embodied in Elijah. And now we have coming because this Elijah character was going to come and prepare the way, the coming of the Son. Now who are the characters that appear with Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration? Do you remember who they were? They are Moses and Elijah. Okay? Why? Because God has spoken through Moses. He gave his law. And God has spoken through the prophets. Elijah represents all the prophets here. And now God was about to speak authoritatively in a new way through his son. He has spoken through Moses. He has spoken through the prophets. And now he was speaking, he is going to speak through his son. And this John the Baptist, this person in the, in the mold of Elijah was to come and to prepare the people for that final authoritative word. Hebrews 1.1. 1, 1. Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. The New Testament is the speaking of God to us by his son. Friends, we must see this. We must savor this. Jesus wasn't just another historical figure in the timeline of God at work within his people. He is the final revelation. He is the final word. His birth, his life, his teachings, his death, his resurrection, and his gospel message through the apostolic word of the New Testament is the final authoritative word of God spoken to us. God is not silent anymore. The 400 years of silence have gone and God has spoken through his son. In Jesus, we have the full revelation of God. If we see Jesus and savor Jesus, we see God. Again, Hebrews 1, as I mentioned, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Verse 3, he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And Jesus said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. I want Harbins to see and savor Jesus Christ because in doing so, we see the glory of God and we hear the revelation of God, the word of God. The Son is the final word. We do not live in silent years anymore. We live in years of fulfillment, years of revelation, years of the word of God, Jesus made flesh and living among us. And we live in the years of the Spirit of God at work in His people like never before. So I forgot to bring up the points here. So let me, guys, can y'all go ahead and bring me to the next slide? Because I forgot to do it for you guys. But there's the title. Our first point was that the word, the, the arrival of John signals that the word of the Lord was again being spoken. Number two, the arrival of John signals that the Spirit of the Lord was again at work in His people. The arrival of John signals that the Spirit of God was again at work amongst his people. Remember, 400 years without any miracles, the Holy Spirit had not moved amongst his people during that time. It says here in verse 14, And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will what? He will be filled with 
the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. This is significant. The Holy Spirit had not been visibly at work in Israel for over 400 years. And now comes this child who will be filled with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit indwelling his people. What was that? What was this new thing that God was announcing, that God was doing? Well, faithful old Zechariah here probably would have immediately thought of the prophecies of Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 25, says this. This is God this is the prophecy of Ezekiel about the, the, the last days when the Messiah would come and the new covenant would be established. It says in verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Verse 27, And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I give to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Zechariah had to know as the angels are saying, as as Gabriel is saying this to him, that the spirit of God was now coming to reside within his people. It meant that a new day had arrived where God was working amongst his people again through the Holy Spirit. The day had arrived where the people of God, by God's working, would return to God because he's at work in their hearts through the Spirit. That's what the angel has said to him in verse 16. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, their God. The only way anyone can turn to the Lord, their God, is not because of magnificent preaching, whether be it by John the Baptist or anybody else, but by the Spirit of God. Only the Spirit of God can draw men to Jesus. And that's what's happening here. Oh, I want us to see and to savor this. What a day we live in. Do you realize what a joyful day we live in? We live in a day where the Spirit of God has been poured out upon His people and resides within His people. We live in the day of the fulfillment of the prophecies of Ezekiel. By the working of Christ, we have been cleansed from all our idolatry. We have been given a new heart. And our old heart of stone has been removed. And we've been given an obedient heart. And now the Spirit of God resides in all those who've truly been saved. And that Spirit of God is what causes us to walk in God's ways. This is an amazing thing. If there's anything you're doing in your life as a believer that, that, that brings glory to God, if you're walking with the Lord in any sort of way, you can take absolutely no credit for it. It is the Spirit of God at work in you. That is a prophecy that Ezekiel said was going to happen. And when Christ came, it did happen because Christ gave us the Holy Spirit. God is glorified in His saints, saving them, regenerating their hearts through the shed blood of Christ. And in his spirit residing in them to produce good works. All because of Jesus. Jesus has baptized his people in the spirit of God. The spirit of God sent by Jesus after his work was complete. So that those who put their hope in Christ alone would receive the Holy Spirit. And be empowered to be a people who love him. Who serve him. A people who desire to be like him. To be holy just as he is holy. The Spirit of God in us is what produces good deeds. Paul said in Philippians to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But how do you do that? You do that by knowing that it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
And what's his good pleasure is to produce things in you through the Spirit, like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And the Spirit of God, this Holy Spirit sent by Christ, is also the guarantee that we will endure to the end. 2 Corinthians 1.22 says that he's put his seal on us, giving us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Ephesians 1.13 says that when we heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Sealed for the day of redemption. Sealed for the day of redemption. And with that in mind, I want to give us our third point. The arrival of John signals, number three, that the day of the Lord was dawning at last. The day of the Lord. Now, this was quite a special day for Zechariah. It was a special day because there were 18,000 priests serving in Jerusalem. And they were broken up into 24 divisions. And the 24 divisions would serve twice a year at the temple. Okay? And so, he was, this was a spectacular day. His division was serving at the temple... And then amongst his division, which would be about between 700 to 1,000 priests in his division, they would cast lots to choose who gets to go into the temple to actually burn the incense. And the way that would work is that one, he would have two assistants come in with him. One would have hot coals and one that would have the incense. And they would come and he would take the coals from the one assistant and then take the incense from the other assistant and those two would leave. And then he would put the incense on the coals and then pour water on it as, those, as the incense burned, as the water lifted smoke up, the sweet aroma would go up. And it was representative of the prayers of the people being lifted up to God. Now this privilege was, was like I said, it was only something that you only, could only get chosen to do if, you, if, the, if the lots fell your way. And then once you did it, you were never allowed to do it again. So many priests never got this opportunity. So if a priest got chosen, it was a special day. This was a big day for Zechariah. You know, imagine the butterflies he's feeling as he's getting ready to do this. This is an exciting day for him. But, this is a great day for Zechariah. But this is the inauguration of an even greater day. The day of the Lord. Let's go back to Malachi. Malachi 4. Okay? I mentioned already the end of Malachi, but the whole section of Malachi 4, the whole chapter is about the day of the Lord. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts. So it is so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from under the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. The day of the Lord has arrived with the coming of the Messiah that John was announcing. Now this term, day of the Lord, is used in different ways in Scripture. Sometimes it's used in a general way to refer as a specific moment when God acts in history. Like in Lamentation 2 when Jeremiah refers to the judgment that God had brought upon Israel as the day of the Lord. Or in Joel chapter 1, which refers to the present disaster that they were enduring as the day of the Lord. But most of the time it's used, it's referring in an eschatological sense to the end times, a day of the Lord coming when God will mete out deliverance, judgment, restoration, and he will visit his people and be with his people forever after that point. 
Gabriel, by quoting Malachi, is saying, Zechariah, that day is, is dawning. The day has arrived. The day of visitation of God with us, Emmanuel, had come. The day of restoration where God was making all things new. The day of deliverance from sin. And yes, the day of judgment for sin. The first lights of the day of the Lord were peeking over the horizon. I remember going on a cruise. I guess it's been probably three or four years now that Heather and I got a chance to go on a cruise. And we were on this cruise. And one morning I decided to get up and watch the sunrise. Because I thought, I'm only going to get this opportunity very few times in my life to actually watch a sunrise while in the middle of the ocean. So I got up to watch the sunrise. And, and at first, you know, it's just dark and, and things begin to get a little bit lighter. But the moment that that sun begins to peek over the horizon, everything changes. All of a sudden, there's a burst of colors all across the sky. And as it continues to rise, the colors get deeper and more vibrant and more glorious. And it's a majestic thing to witness. And that's what's happening here as, as, as this angel Gabriel is saying to Zechariah that, hey, this son of yours is going to be this, this forerunner prophet announcing the Messiah and announcing that the day of the Lord has arrived. And so this day of the Lord is beginning to dawn the word day here in Hebrew, in, in, in the Hebrew in the Old Testament, but also in the way it was used in the Septuagint in the Greek, could have meant a, a, a specific uh, 24-hour period. It also could have just referred to the daylight hours. But also, in several places, it refers to an age. In this case, the day of the Lord has been initiated by the first coming of Christ, and it will be completed upon the return of Christ. It's like that sunrise. The day is dawning. It has been initiated and it will be completed. I want us to see and savor this. That Christ, with the arrival of Christ and his finished work and the giving of the Spirit, we now have the final day breaking into human history as we eagerly await without fear the coming of Christ. Not losing heart but continually praying, come Lord Jesus. 2 Peter 3.8 says, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth will and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they, melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are awaiting a new heavens and a new earth in which, the righteous, in which righteousness dwells. Paul taught us and Peter taught us to wait for the Son from heaven who was raised from the dead. Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. To wait on his return. 
Titus 2.12 tells us to renounce godliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are to savor Jesus Christ so much that we can't wait for him to return. And what does that lead us to, according to Peter and according to to, um, Paul, as he writes to Titus? It should lead to lives of godliness. Why do we covet the things of this earth when we have a treasure that is coming back to receive us unto himself? Jesus is our treasure. Don't, don't think of treasure in heaven as like, like, like a Muslim would think of treasure in heaven. That you're going to get a, a hundred virgins and a, and a, and a palace and, and a bunch of spending money. That is not treasure. Treasure is that you are going to be in the presence of Jesus Christ, worshiping him, speaking to him, enjoying him for all eternity. If that doesn't make everything on this planet pale in comparison, I can't tell you anything else. I can't help you overcome coveting your neighbor's house in any other way than to say, who cares? You have Christ. It's my only hope. I want it to be yours. I want you to treasure Christ so much that it leads you to godliness. It leads you to a lifestyle of surrendering everything else. Because I've got Jesus. And I believe the new heavens and the new earth are going to be a perfected, cleaned up version of this heaven and this earth. So I've said this to several people. I I get stressed out sometimes about not being able to go the places I want to go and do the things I want to do. I've never been to the Niagara Falls. I really would like to go someday. I would like to go to Africa and see the lions and the, what are the tall ones? Giraffes. I would love that. But if Christ never opens those doors for me, I pray that God will keep me through his spirit from coveting and desiring those things more than I should. Because the day is coming when I'm going to be part of the new heavens and the new earth. And I'm going to get to enjoy those things for all eternity. I'm going to be able to pet the lions. Wrestle with the lions. Maybe swim over the Niagara Falls. I don't know. Maybe, I don't know if you can still be foolish in the new heavens and the new earth or not. All I know is, it's coming. And it gets me pumped. And it keeps me from desiring the things that Satan wants me to desire as he lays out his poster board in front of me like a movie and just plays in front of me, want this, want this, want this, want this, want this. And I fight it. And there's some days I give in and I want the things that Satan wants me to want. And I pray that God will daily, through his word and by his spirit, get my eyes back on the prize. And get Harbin's eyes back on the prize. If we treasure Christ, this doesn't matter. If it's on video, or if we have Chris Tomlin leading next week. Which we don't, by the way. Just in case anyone went out and started a rumor. Although that might increase attendance. Nor do these things matter. These chairs that I'd like to see more filled. Doesn't mean I don't need to work on my leadership and 
and confront the mistakes I've made in my life and the leadership of this church that have perhaps contributed to us not growing as fast as we want to grow. We need to work on these things. That's holiness. We fight and we work on these things. But ultimately, our hope is in Christ alone. My hope is not that I'll be a better pastor or that we'll get better worship leaders. (laughs) I have one treasure. It's Jesus Christ. The finalization of these days should drive us to holiness because Christ is our treasure. The final day of the Lord is a great day of joy, but it is also a great day of fear. For it is a day of deliverance and judgment. For those in Christ Jesus, Jesus, the judgment has already been meted out upon Jesus who bore the wrath on behalf of his people. But for those who are not in Christ, judgment is to come and will remain upon them for all eternity. The arrival of John on the scene announces that the day of the Lord has come. John the Baptist would later say this, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. We don't like to think of Jesus like this because we like to think of Jesus as, as well, basically we like to think of Jesus as Gandhi. Let's just, let's just get honest. We like to think that Jesus is just a bearded Gandhi. Here's what John the Baptist says in the next verse about Jesus. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. When Jesus returns on that great day, he won't be Gandhi in flowing robes coming down holding up a peace symbol. He is coming as a conquering king. And for all of those who place their hope in Christ alone before that day, they will receive that day with great joy. But for those who didn't, it will be a day of terror. It will be the first day of terror for the rest of eternity for them. This was John's message to prepare the way. He was the predicted one that Luke points out as later Luke quotes Isaiah 43 through 5, the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. This was John's purpose, to announce Christ. And of course that leads us to the very last point of the day. The arrival of John signals, number four, that Christ the Lord was coming at last. Christ the Lord was coming at last. Let me finish with this last little focus here. John chapter 1, verse 6. This is how John speaks of John the Baptist. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. So I leave us with this question this morning. Have you seen the light? God is not silent. He has spoken decisively, conclusively. He has poured out His Spirit upon all who believe. And He is the one at work within us to produce good fruit. Don't buy into the false religion of morality. Don't buy into the false religion that you can just do things for God and check, have a big old check-off list. It's a false religion. Buy into the religion of abiding in Christ and seeing His Spirit produce something out of you. 
We also see in this text that God has ushered in the beginning of the end, the day of the Lord. Will it be a terrible day for you or a day of unbridled joy? If you can't treasure Christ today, and these things that I'm talking to you about today, about treasuring Christ above everything else, if it doesn't resonate with you, and you don't care, and you want to go after the world, then I have a fear for you that that day of the Lord will not be a happy day. It will not be a happy day. God has sent Jesus Christ And Jesus is coming back again. Hear God speak. Call upon the name of Christ today. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And do not fear the arrival of that final day. Do not harden your heart. Do not disbelieve. Do not be like Zechariah in the rest of this passage. We don't have time. I've already gone way over. We don't have time really to look at the rest of the passage here. But Zechariah, when he hears all of this, this great news that this final day has been inaugurated, that his own son is going to be the Elijah-type prophet, and that the Messiah is coming. You'd think that Zechariah would go, woohoo! But he doesn't believe. He says, how, how can this be? And the angel shuts his mouth. He doesn't allow him to speak. as judgment upon him for his lack of belief. Now, eventually, Zechariah would come around. We see that when he names John, John, later in this text, later in the passage, that he's, his faith was restored. But for right now, he didn't believe. Don't be Zechariah out there, friends, with eyes that don't see, with ears that don't hear. Call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Today is the day of salvation for all who would believe bow our heads and close our eyes and pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we praise you and thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, for this text of scripture. And Lord, I'll be honest, I didn't know, quite know how to preach it this morning. But I, I just thank you, Lord, that what you laid upon my heart really is what is at the heart of all of scripture. Just point to Jesus, because that's what the passage does. It's not about Zechariah. It's not about Elizabeth. It's not even about John the Baptist, really. It's about Jesus. And so, God, I pray that our whole lives would point to Jesus, that we would treasure him above everything else. God, we pray that you send your spirit in a fresh way. We know that those who are believers in this church already have the Holy Spirit residing within them, but we also know your, your, your word teaches about being filled with the Spirit, meaning that we, there are times in which you move in a special way in your people. You stir us up, and we stop sinning and stop grieving the Holy Spirit in the ways we have before. And so we pray that we would have a fresh move of your Spirit here at Harbin's. And God, we don't want to be distracted by the peripheral things. We want to treasure Jesus above everything else. But God, we do know you're in charge of all the details. Just like choosing the day and the time in which John the Baptist would be born, so too you have chosen the day and the times, the seasons that we are going through right now. And we trust you with every bit of it. So Lord, we pray now that we'd respond to you with the bringing of our offerings, the bringing of our, our um, um, prayer requests during this time. May you be greatly honored as we sing one final song and then head to Bible study. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand. If you-